Well, throughout human history, kings, presidents, prime ministers, dictators, they've always touted that their country, their nation, their people are the strongest, that they have supremacy and power over others. Our world has scarcely known a time when uh, countries and leaders are not fighting against one another. Currently, nobody needs to be reminded of the, the flexing of muscle taking place in, the, in Eastern Europe and in Israel. For instance, the, 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 the conflict in Ukraine, um, uh, the, the largest invasion that has taken place since World War II on European soil uh, took place almost two years ago, about a year and a half ago, in early 2022. But that conflict is one that goes back uh, nearly a decade, right? You remember Russia uh, said that they had the rights to Crimea back in 2014. The question is always raised, who's in charge? The same is happening in Israel. Who's the authority? Who's in charge? Who oversees these things? Well, this morning in Exodus 5, we we likewise see a battle for authority. Except this battle is not for the the right of land, but rather for the right to a people. This, This morning, your title is, Who's in Charge? Exodus 5. Pharaoh believes that the Israelites are his. He believes that he has a right to do with them as he pleases. On the other hand, Moses and Aaron declare to Pharaoh that these people, the Israelites, belong to Yahweh. I gave you a theme of the chapter. Pharaoh challenges God's authority in this chapter, which causes Israel's enslavement to go from bad to worse. And then kickstarting the miraculous events that lead to Yahweh's redemption of his people. I couldn't say it better than Goran Larson, so I, I gave you his quote as well. He says, The critical issue to be settled is nothing less than who is in charge, who has the authority over the people of Israel, and ultimately over all nations and all of creation, the God of Israel or the gods of Egypt manifest in Pharaoh. For us, the challenge yourselves, we can ask ourselves how We challenge God's authority as sinful human beings, even being redeemed by grace. There are times in our lives that we challenge God's authority, but we should not. Or perhaps uh, it's not so much a challenge, uh, but a question of, you know, is God really in charge? We look around at the world uh, around us and question whether or not God is really in charge. Well, you left off at a high point in Exodus chapter 4. Uh, the last time you met for a lesson, uh, Moses, we saw, had some sin that he had to deal with, right? He didn't want to obey God. He didn't want to go into the land of Egypt. He said, you know, Lord, I speak no good. Send somebody else. And then we also learned that apparently he had disobeyed the command of circumcision. But he's in Egypt. He comes to the sons of Israel. He performs his miracles. They believe, and we're at a high point in the narrative. In chapter 4, verse 31, it says that the people believed, and when they heard that Yahweh was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshiped. Things are looking good. Moses and Aaron are no doubt encouraged by what's taken place. Uh, Everything seems to be going according to plan. The people have responded. So 
Moses and Aaron move on to step two. They go and they find themselves before the presence of Pharaoh. Read with me the first five verses of chapter five. And afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. Otherwise, he will fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. And again, Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now many, and you would have them cease from their labors. We come to our first outlawing point in this First five verses, a clash of authority. And in verse 1, Moses and Aaron deliver Yahweh's command, your, your first subpoint, And we'll see a, a back and forth here between these parties. At the beginning of chapter 5, we find Moses and Aaron obeying Yahweh's command and delivering the message to Pharaoh. Now how they got before the highest king in the land, the text doesn't tell us, but we know that God's providence put them there. That's all we need to know. And they say to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. Man, what a, what a powerful introduction, right? We know this phrase well. It's the, the, pro, the prophetic formula, if you will. And it's the second time in the text that it's used, and it's used over 400 times in the Old Testament. The first time it was used, you've already seen in, in chapter 422, but it was God commanding Moses and Aaron to use it. Now, Moses and Aaron obey that and say, thus says Yahweh, the second time of over 400 times in the Old Testament. And again, you know this well, it's an introduction to allow the people to know that what the prophets were about to say was coming from Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. I love what Spurgeon says about this phrase. He says, it's the Christian's battle cry or their war cry. Spurgeon says, quote, Thus saith the Lord, this is the motto of our standard, the war cry of our spiritual conflict, the sword with which we hope yet to smite through the lions of those who would rise up against God's truth. Nothing shall stand before this weapon in the day when, the, when God cometh out of his hiding place. And that must have been how Moses and Aaron felt, right? They have confidence. They, they know that, that one true God is behind what they are saying. You can imagine Moses and Aaron after performing the signs and miracles before the sons of Israel and being encouraged by their response, marching to the, the palace of Pharaoh. Perhaps they're thinking, you know, we don't even have to give him the command. We just have to say who we're here on behalf and Pharaoh's going to crumble. Whatever you want to do, go ahead. It's my desire. But that's not what happens. An easy release isn't part of God's plan. And instead, Pharaoh hardens his heart as God had promised and refuses to heed to his demand. Which then brings us to Pharaoh's refusal. He says in verse 2, Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? Wow. 
What defiance coming from the king of Egypt? This raises the question of, in what sense does Pharaoh not know Yahweh? Does he, does he truly have no knowledge of this God, the one true God? Has he never heard this divine name? That could very well be. Perhaps Pharaoh had never heard this divine name, and some commentators land there. But even if the king of Egypt had never heard the divine name Yahweh, we know that this innocence is, a, uh, is not, or excuse me, this, this arrogance is not an innocent arrogance and ignorance. Pharaoh had the law of the Lord written on his heart, just like every Gentile does. Romans 2, 14 and 15. For when Gentiles do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law unto themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them. All men including Pharaoh, have God's moral law written on their hearts. We know this. The ignorance of, or Pharaoh's ignorance of Yahweh is not out of a a lack of knowledge, uh, but from a sinful heart that is in rebellion to his creator. And we know from Romans 1, what is Pharaoh doing? He's worshiping the, the, the creature or the creation rather than the creator, Romans 1.25. But, but in what way? What way is Pharaoh Worshiping the, the creation and the, the creature rather than the creator. Pharaoh, as you've likely been told in, in Egypt, they worship a pantheon of gods. And they saw Pharaoh as what? They saw him as a god. They saw him as a little g god. One Bible encyclopedia says the following. i put this on your outline for you. Of the pharaohs in Egypt. He, Pharaoh, was for his people a God among men and a man among the gods, the human holder of a divine office, the intermediary between the people of Egypt and the gods of the cosmos. So a Pharaoh is the intermediary between the, the gods of Egypt and the people of Egypt. Who does this Moses think he is? He comes into the divine presence of Pharaoh and says that he has a word from God. You can imagine this isn't pleasing to Pharaoh. He's the highest authority in the land and is a, a, a god among men. Pharaoh is the one who speaks on behalf of the, the Egyptian gods. And this gives us a little insight. You'll remember when God had said to Moses back in chapter 4 that I will make you like a god to Pharaoh. And then he says it again in chapter 7. This is what he means. He means that when you show up, you will be like Pharaoh thinks he is, right? And what happens when the real thing shows up? The fake all of a sudden feels inferior, right? The fake realizes he's a fake. But we're not quite to that point. That will come later on in uh, coming chapters. At this point, Pharaoh is not amused. He simply sees this as a challenge to his authority. Hey, Moses, Aaron, I'm the guy that communicates on behalf of the gods around here, not you. Pharaoh is not amused. He doesn't recognize Yahweh's authority. He doesn't recognize Moses and Aaron's authority through them. This is is an act of uh, defiant unbelief on Pharaoh's part, on on his part. By asking who is Yahweh, he's defying Yahweh's authority. It's like when a defiant kid, right, an adult comes up to a kid and says, uh, hey, I need you to, to stack the chairs or do this or do that. And they're like, you're not my mom. You can't tell me what to do. 
right? That's what Pharaoh is doing here. But little does he know that this question is going to launch him into the next uh, 10 chapters for us, next 11 to 12 months for him, and the 10 plagues and all of the signs and wonders that God is going to do in Egypt. His question is the catalyst behind God revealing himself. himself. 11 times over the next 10 chapters, Moses records for us God's purpose in these signs and wonders. Look at chapter 6, verse 7. Just flip over a page or maybe on the other side there. It says, Then I will make you for my people, or take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God's plan is to make himself known. His plan is to answer this question, Who is Yahweh? And even if it was a uh, disingenuous question, on, or disingenuous question on Pharaoh's part, God will answer it. Pharaoh needs to buckle up because he's about to find out who Yahweh is. Well, Pharaoh's first refusal causes Aaron and Moses to reiterate God's command. And in verse 3, we have Yahweh's command, part 2. Now, it's hard to say for sure, but it's likely that Moses and Aaron are, are a little taken back by Pharaoh's defiance, which becomes clear as the, the the, uh, the chapter unfolds, right? Even though God had clearly told them that uh, Pharaoh's heart would be hard and that he would further harden it, right? they're a little bit taken back by how hard it is. Now, there's some discussion here among commentators about uh, how accurately Aaron and Moses obeyed God. Uh, what do I mean? When, when, when he delivered their command, how accurate was their obedience? If you look back in chapter 3, verse 18, Yahweh says to Moses, he says, They will pay heed to what you say, and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. This is what Moses says in verse 3. So some commentators will say, well, Moses and Aaron didn't really obey in verse 1, and therefore uh, Pharaoh didn't listen, and then they have to reiterate the command more accurately um, how they should have uh, in the beginning. But I, I don't think this is what's going on. Oh, and then also Yahweh says to bring the elders with him, right? Do we see the Israel leaders and elders in this passage? No, we don't, um, but it doesn't say one way or the other. It doesn't say they're not there, so we, we shouldn't be arguing too much from silence. Um, it's interesting, Jewish tradition even recognizes that the, the leaders aren't there. And in Jewish commentaries on Exodus, they'll say, well, the, the Israel uh, elders were on their way with Moses and Aaron, but they chickened out. They uh, realized, ah, we better not go in before Pharaoh, and stepped aside and allowed, Pharaoh, or allowed Moses and Aaron to go in. But I don't, I don't think that's what's going on. I don't think there's any disobedience on Moses and Aaron's part. Right? In chapter 4, Moses has been pretty clear that he was a sinner. Right? He, he tried to defy God and say, you know, I don't speak well, don't send me, send somebody else. I just really don't want to go. And then he also disobeyed his command to circumcise his son. And he'll be clear about the fact that he's not going to get into the promised land later on in the Pentateuch as well because he disobeys God's command. Moses is clear about his sin. So I don't, I don't think that Moses and Aaron are sinning here. I think they've obeyed God. But Pharaoh's heart is hard. And they're simply reiterating his command. I like what uh, one commentator says here. I think he's the most insightful about this uh, verse 1 and 3 difference. Uh, A.W. Pink uh, says the following. He says, The commands in verse 1 speak from the divine perspective 
while the command in verse 3 speak from the human perspective. What does he mean there? In other words, he's saying that God's heart's desire is that he can celebrate with his people. That's what they say in verse 1. But can man celebrate with God? No, they can't, unless there's what? In verse 3, a sacrifice. Pink says, quote, God must be placated, blood must be shed, the divine justice must be propitiated, end quote. Therefore, for Pink, he's saying that this is two different ways of communicating the command, and it's a reminder to God's people that we need a sacrifice in order to be in the presence of Yahweh, in order to celebrate a feast with him. The same is true for us Christians. You know this. God, is, God very much anticipates our celebration with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But let us never forget that that can't take place without the sacrifice. May this command here serve us to remember that we need Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. His righteousness and his blood, his life and his death and his resurrection are our only hopes, our only hope in life and death. But Pharaoh is unfaced. He doesn't care about festivals and celebrations in the wilderness. He doesn't care about sacrifices. And he continues to harden his heart. You guessed it. Yahweh's refusal Part 2, verses 4 and 5. We begin to see a little bit into Pharaoh's heart here, though. While the previous Pharaoh, remember there was a Pharaoh that died at the end of chapter 2, he had tried to kill all the young Hebrew boys because he was afraid that the population would rise up and, and turn against him or side with his enemies and turn against him. But this Pharaoh, he sees the Israelite slaves as a commodity. He says, I mean, you know how many bricks these guys are making for me? You know how many things I've built because of these Israelite slaves? I don't want to get rid of them. I'm going to exploit them. But if he's going to exploit this large population of Hebrews as he has done, he needs to make sure that he keeps them submissive to authority. And he doesn't want Moses and Aaron uh, you know, starting a, a revival, if you will, an uprising. He aims to teach the Hebrews a lesson. Read with me verses 6, or beginning in verse 6. So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen, saying, You are no longer to give the people straw to make brick as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the quota of bricks which they were making previously, you shall impose on them. You are not to reduce any of it, because they are lazy. Therefore they cry out, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let the labor be heavier on the men, and let them work. At it, so that they will pay no attention to false words. So the taskmasters of the people and their foremen went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I am not going to give you any straw. You go and get straw for yourselves, wherever you can find it, but none of, none of your labor will be reduced. So the people scattered through all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters pressed them, saying, Complete your work quota, your daily amount, just as when you had straw. Moreover, the foremen of the sons of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not completed your required amount, either yesterday or today, in making bricks as previously? In these verses, we see Pharaoh flex his authority. Pharaoh's first response to the demands of Yahweh is ignorant unbelief and scoffing. Who is Yahweh that I should take heed to his commands? In fact, we learn in verse 9, as we read, that Pharaoh 
has no acknowledgement. He shows no acknowledgement of Yahweh's existence. Verse 9, he said, Let the labor be heavier on the men and let them work at it so that they will pay no attention to what? To false words. He sees Yahweh's command as a, as a fantasy. He doesn't believe in this God. To Pharaoh, the Israelites are his slaves. They are under his authority and his control. He's in charge, and he will stand for no insubordination. It's interesting, it says in verse 6, so the same day. Now, we don't know for sure, but it seems that perhaps Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh's presence, and he's kind of mulling over, thinking about the things that they had said to him. And you know, when we allow our anger to get the best of us, and we think about something someone said to us, and we just keep thinking, man, I should have said this, or I should have said that. We shouldn't be, but we do sometimes, right? And we get angry about these things. That's exactly what happened to Pharaoh. What happens? Later that afternoon, most likely, he's like, you know what? You know what? I'll teach them a lesson. I'll flex my authority. I'll show them who is boss. They want to go on a little vacation out in the wilderness, do they? How about a little hard labor instead of a vacation and a festival? Pharaoh's aim is not only to flex his authority, but to break the will and desire of these Israelites to go sacrifice to what he thinks is a fantasy God of theirs. In verses 9 through 6, we have Pharaoh's command spoken. And in these verses, Pharaoh gives the, the counter command to Yahweh's command. It's the complete opposite. His command is in direct opposition to what Yahweh had spoken through his people. He's not shy about it either. Yahweh said, give my people rest, and he gives them hard labor instead. Then in verses 10 through 14, we have Pharaoh's command executed. In this section... I'm giving you these up front, but in this section, Pharaoh's response uh, with this flex of authority is a, is a command of his own to, to break the Israelites' will and show them who's boss. Now, some of you know me, some of you don't, uh, but before the Lord called me to pursue pastoral ministry, I was in the army, and I served as an as a army officer. And sometimes our soldiers needed a little encouragement to submit to authority. But on one occasion, uh, a sister company had a soldier who was just defiant beyond all belief. I'll, I'll spare you the details, but I mean, at every turn, he broke rules. And, and his chain of command tried everything to, to essentially break his will, his defiant will. They gave him extra um, duty. They took away his pay. You can do that in the army. They put him on essentially what is a barracks arrest, Right? You'd basically stay in your room, but he would sneak out and do all kinds of things. So finally, in a desperate measure to, to break this soldier's will, they assigned him hard labor. They gave him about 100 sandbags and a big pile of sand. And we get these short shovels that are about this big in the army. And his task was to fill up those 100 sandbags. When he finished filling them up, he had to dump them out again and fill them up again. He did this for 18 hours a day for 30 days. He got five hours to sleep, and I think he got about a half hour for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Of course, he was allowed to drink water in between. And he got pretty slow at filling up those sandbags as those days dragged on. But after those 30 days, I had never heard of another problem of insubordination from that soldier. <laughs> Pharaoh, too, wanted to break the Israelites' will. I'll just, I'll teach him a lesson. And they'll want nothing to do with sacrificing to their God. And did you catch Pharaoh's command in verse 10? 
executed, when it was executed, the taskmasters, what do they say? Thus says Pharaoh. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. He's, he's mocking Moses and Aaron. He, he's mocking God. But instead of sandbags and sand, Pharaoh assigns the task that the Israelites always had, making bricks. But now they needed to hunt down their own straw. Previously, the, the Israelite slaves were provided straw, right? We read this in the text to make the bricks, but no longer. Now they had to collect the straw on their own. One commentator says that straw was added to clay because the, the organic acid compound in it or found in it made the clay more plastic, right? And, and it wouldn't crumble after it got wet, uh, so on and so forth. So without straw, these bricks were essentially what? They were essentially useless, and so in verse 12, we see that the Israelites are resorted to finding stubble for straw. This suggests that maybe it was the end of the harvest, right? There was no straw left, and they had to go and find stubble. You know what stubble is, right? A man doesn't shave his beard, and he has a little bit of stubble left. Lance and I have beards full of straw. But this is an extremely tedious task. Right? I mean, this is just like the thing that is just sticking out of the ground that's left, right? It's still straw, but there's not much of it left. Extremely tedious, and they still have to meet the quota that they've had before. Make no mistake, Pharaoh isn't all of a sudden looking uh, towards a new building project, and he all of a sudden needs more bricks. No, this is him flexing his authority. He's punishing the slaves, punishing Moses and Aaron, and giving them hard labor. And that's exactly what happens in verse 14, right? The the foremen, it says, are beaten. This is exactly what Pharaoh wanted to happen. He wanted an excuse to be able to beat his slaves. It was Pharaoh's way of reminding the Hebrews, you are my slaves. You belong to me. I'm in charge. Now, I want to spend a few moments discussing uh, this brick-making in Egypt because uh, it's just informative to us. You've, I've listened to a few past messages, both in Genesis and Exodus, and you know, you've been learning that Hebrew, or excuse me, not Hebrew, um, liberal scholars love to attack the Pentateuch and, and, and call these narratives into question. In my research, even one um, Israeli archaeologist believes, and he's not the only one that believes this, believes that the, the Exodus was some myth that the Israelites created after returning from the Babylonian exile. In fact, he, he wrote a book his name is Israel Finkelstein, and he said, he's not only an archaeologist, he's also the head professor of archaeology and some other things at Tel Aviv University, and he says the following in this book, The Bible Unearthed. The historical saga contained in the Bible, from Abraham's encounter with God and his journey to Canaan, to Moses' deliverance of the children of Israel from bondage, is a brilliant product of human imagination. People's unbelief runs so deep that even this Man born in Israel, this Israeli, this Hebrew, denies the history of his own people. We know, right, it's not that there isn't archaeological evidence. The fact is that he's blinded by his own sin. With any passage of Scripture, whether it's historical narrative or otherwise, we know that the, the, the truth is not only in the big picture, but also in the details. God is a God of details. And we know he's a God of character, right? He, he's, he's true in all that he does and all that he says. Yahweh cannot lie. Titus 1, 2, and the sum of his word is truth, Psalm 119, 160. And so why, why am I sharing these things? Because there's some evidence in archaeology that, that is just makes uh, 
matches exactly what takes place in Exodus chapter 5. And this isn't to convince the unbeliever, right? We know that the believer needs, or excuse me, the unbeliever needs the gospel. They need to be confronted by God's word, and they need to be called to repentance and faith in Jesus. But this, this, this stuff is for us, for believers, to bolster our faith and strengthen our faith and see how kind God is, right? He, he, he gives us the details, and those details we find out later, right? We don't need, again, archaeology to prove that the Bible is true. We know it's true. But God is kind to give it to us, to bolster our faith. You see before you the Louvre leather roll. It's found in the, the Louvre Museum in Paris. Some people call it the Louvre. I was informed once that that's not how you say it. It's Louvre. I, I don't know. But anyways, this is an ancient Egyptian document that dates within a few hundred years, if not a hundred years, of the Exodus. Probably even closer. But of course, you know, you can't get scholars to agree on anything, let alone dates. Um, but this is an ancient piece of writing material, and it records events strikingly similar to Exodus 5. Dr. Kenneth Kitchen is a biblical scholar and uh, Egyptian hist- historian who has uh, made three discoveries within this Louvre leather roll. He says, one, it records daily brick counts and quotas to include how many bricks short each day the slaves were to meeting their quota. Sound familiar? Yeah, it's what we read in Exodus 5. He says that it also describes gangs of slaves who were led around by two foremen from their own number. In other words, these foremen were of the same ethnicity of those slaves. Again, exactly what we see happening in Exodus 5. Finally, he says the Louvre leather roll also records how slaves, regardless of their ethnicity, would ask for time off to observe religious festivals and holidays. Sound familiar? Yeah, it's exactly what Moses and Aaron had asked Pharaoh for, right? Their, their, their request to Pharaoh was not without historical precedent. And I say all this to say, again, what you already know, the sum of God's word is true. It's truth both in, its, in the sum of his word and in all the details. We don't need archaeological evidence to teach us that, but these God is kind to give us to bolster our faith. Whether it's Details about bricks and straw, or whether it's details about justification by faith alone, or whether it's the creation of the universe, we can trust the details of God's Word. But God's Word is also a literary masterpiece, and any study of Exodus will show you this. Um, I mean, they're, 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 they're littered all over the place here at Exodus 5 in this book, but I just wanted to show you one to just show you uh, this, the, the, the type of literature that we're in here in this narrative. In Hebrew, the word for stubble in verse 12 that I've been talking about is often translated chaff, right? You know this. It's the stuff that is useless, right? It's thrown up in the air and blown away by the wind. And it's the same word that's translated chaff in chapter 15, verse 7. If you want to turn there, you can. I'll read it for you. Chapter 15, verse 7 records Moses and Israel going Uh, or or singing the song of praise to Yahweh. And verse 7 reads the following. And in the greatness of your excellence, you, that is Yahweh, overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff or stubble. You see, Yahweh always gets the last laugh. Israel here in chapter 15 is doing what? They're praising Yahweh, and they're remembering what Pharaoh did to them. 
Go out, make your bricks, the quote is the same, and do it with stubble. And how they knew they would fail, and they did fail, and Pharaoh beat them. But what you made us scavenge for, Pharaoh, you became, because our God is Yahweh, and he destroys those who rise up against his people. Pharaoh becomes the very thing that he made the Israelites scavenge for. But Moses and Israel, they're not quite at this point of praise. They have much to learn, and they need to learn it, and they will learn it. But ultimately, what they need to learn is who is in charge. There's a question of authority here at the end of chapter 5, a question of authority. I'll pick up in verse 15. Then the foreman of the sons of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why do you deal this way with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants, yet they keep saying to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are being beaten. But it is the fault of your own people. But he, Pharaoh, said to them, You are lazy, very lazy. Therefore you say, Let us go and sacrifice to Yahweh. So go now and work, for you will be given no straw. Yet you must deliver the same quota of bricks. The foreman of the sons of Israel saw that they were in trouble because they were told, you must not reduce your daily amount of bricks. First subpoint under this section is Israel cries out to Pharaoh's authority. Well, we've seen this word cry out be used before. You remember at the end of chapter 2, verse 23, Moses records an earlier occasion of the Israelites crying out. But who did they cry out to? They cried out to God. But here in chapter 5, now they're crying out to Pharaoh. What's going on? You would expect these Israelites to recognize. I mean, God loves us. He, he answered our prayer. Why don't we cry out to him? We would expect them to do as they had done previously. But they don't like Yahweh's answer to their prayer thus far. Instead, they expect, well, Pharaoh's a, a reasonable guy. We can go to him and just tell him the situation. What's going on? And he'll understand, and he'll lower the quota for us. Good luck, guys. A tyrant doesn't act logically. He cannot be reasoned with. In his convoluted understanding of the situation, he believes that the Israelites are lazy, and therefore he gives them more work to do. And what we're seeing here really is the Israelite heart. They're returning to what? They're returning to their slave master, as if Pharaoh was going to comfort them and bring them ease. What a picture of our enslavement to sin, is it not? After having been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, oh, how often we're tempted to return to our slave master, sin. We think, oh, yes, I'll find comfort in that again, when in reality we won't, right? The facade of comfort that sin tries to call us back to is just like these Israelites going back to Pharaoh, who had only enslaved them for all these years, now trying to find comfort in him. Let this be a reminder that we must forsake the old master and embrace the new. Jesus Christ, who has redeemed us out of our slavery to sin, let us rest in Christ and find our joy and comfort in him, in his completed work on our behalf. The Israelites are still torn between two masters. We cannot be. One commentator, Alexander, says, I put this on your outline for you, at the heart of the Exodus story is the issue of who will serve or worship whom. The Israelites still see Pharaoh as their ultimate authority. And after crying out to Pharaoh, they turn next to Moses and Aaron and question their authority. 
Read with, read with me verses 20 and 21. When they left Pharaoh's presence, they met Moses and Aaron as they were waiting for them. They said to them, May Yahweh look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Kind of comical that slaves are odious in the sight of their master. Of course they are. But upon leaving Pharaoh's presence, the foreman sought out Moses and Aaron. And perhaps the, the verb could be translated either way here. Perhaps uh, they find um, Moses and Aaron in that the foremen are waiting for Moses and Aaron. Uh, or Moses and Aaron are the ones waiting for the foreman. And I, I believe it's most likely the latter, that Moses and Pharaoh are, are sharply aware, keenly aware of everything that's going on, right? And they wait in anticipation. How is Yahweh going to respond to these foremen going, or excuse me, how is Pharaoh going to respond to these um, foremen coming before them and asking uh, that this labor be lightened? They're concerned, right? They're concerned for these Israelites. They're their brothers, But what happens? The people who, Moses and Aaron, were supposed to redeem the people are only bringing upon the people more slavery, more issues, more hardship. Again, the irony of the the text is rich here. The sword, right? They say that the Pharaoh has only brought a sword upon us, or you have only brought a sword upon us, rather. The very thing that Moses and Aaron said would happen to Pharaoh was brought now or is being crashing down upon the Israelites. How can this be? Things have gone from bad to worse. Moses and Aaron are supposed to make things better. This can't be happening. And God's people are crying out, but they're crying out and blaming the wrong people. Well, how does Moses respond to this situation? Moses questions Yahweh's authority. In one sense, we can applaud Moses because he did turn to the right authority but we certainly can't applaud the way that he turns to him. Read with me in verses 22 and 23. Then Moses returned to Yahweh and said, O Lord, why have you brought harm? Or that's the word for evil. Why have you brought evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm or evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. What is he saying? To Yahweh, He's basically saying, I told you so. Remember in the desert when I said, I'm not going, I'm, I'm not the one, I'm not the man, you should send somebody else. I told you I shouldn't be the one to come. All you've done is brought evil upon me and your brothers, or my brothers. But Moses had much to learn, and so did Israel. What we're seeing here is a man and a people young in their faith. Early in the days of their walk with God. Think about it, right? It's not that they didn't truly believe in chapter, at the end of chapter 4. Those who truly believed in their hearts that Yahweh was their God and would rescue them from their slavery and bowed down and worship from their hearts, they, they're true believers. But what? That was maybe a week ago at most, if not a few days. They're young believers walking with the Lord. Some of us here are young believers. We've walked with the Lord a a mere few years. Others, you've been walking with the Lord for a a long time. And as you walk with the Lord and you look back on how he has brought you through things, how he has taught you things along the way, and you've seen his faithfulness, you've learned to respond to situations in a mature way. 
but these Israelites and Moses are still young in their faith. So we shouldn't be too hard on them in the sense that they should have known to turn to Yahweh. How many times do we return to our sin, right? Hopefully it's less and less and less as we mature in Christ, but there's a sense in which we too are constantly growing in our faith. We, you saw this with, with Abraham as well when you studied the book of Genesis. But let us not be quick to question God's authority. Let us be patient as he works out his plan. Let us trust and obey when our expectations are not met. And when we do, we'll look back and we'll have seen his marvelous hand at work. We'll be able to say with David, like he does in Psalm 34, Oh, we've tasted and we've seen that Yahweh is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this narrative. Thank you that you give us uh, this narrative and you teach us that not only did Moses and the people of Israel need to grow in their faith, so do we. We need to trust you more and more each day. Trust and obey regardless of the, the circumstances of the world, regardless of the circumstances.